Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Friday the 29th of September. It's the final trading day of the week, the month and the quarter and even better we have a long holiday weekend coming up here in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries and thank you for making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. In today's business and finance headlines, shares of China Evergrande Group were suspended from trading on Thursday, Hong Kong Stock Exchange announced. Trading in two other Evergrande units in property services and electric cars was also suspended. After the close, Evergrande said that its chairman, Hoi Kai-yan, has been put under police surveillance. In a statement to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, Evergrande said Mr. Hoi has been subject to mandatory measures in accordance with the law due to suspicion of illegal crimes without giving any further the details. Fresh data showed that the US economy maintained a fairly solid pace of growth in the second quarter, advancing 2.1% on an annualised basis, slightly below the previous quarter's upwardly revised 2.2% expansion. Consumer spending, though, rose much less than initially expected, by 0.8% versus 1.7% in the second estimate as spending on services slowed. U.S. mortgage rates have reached the highest level since the year 2000 as rising bond yields push up borrowing costs. The average 30-year fixed-rate mortgage increased to 7.31%, mortgage lender Freddie Mac said on Thursday, up from 6.7% in the corresponding week of last year. And U.S. stocks are on track for their worst month of the year as the Fed's higher for longer interest rates message sent shares and government bonds tumbling on Wall Street. The S&P 500 has fallen 4.6% in September, dragging it towards its first quarterly loss in 12 months. Equities have been pressured this month by a sharp sell-off in US government bonds. Yields on the benchmark 10-year Treasury rose to 4.61% earlier this week, the highest level since 2007, and yields on the 30-year note advanced to 4.72%. That's their highest level since 2011. The US dollar index has surged to a 10-month high this week, and the dollar scaled multi-month highs against the euro, sterling and the Japanese yen. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. All major U.S. stock indices closed higher on Thursday as investors digested a slew of economic data and Treasury yields slipped from multi-year highs. The S&P 500 added 0.6% to the key 4,300 level. The Dow climbed 116 points or 0.4% to 33,666. The Nasdaq Composite jumped 0.8% to 13,201, helped by gains for mega-cap technology stocks. Meta rose to 2.1%, Tesla climbed 2.4%, Alphabet advanced 1.4%, and NVIDIA gained 1.5%. The yield on the benchmark US 10-year Treasury hit a fresh 15-year high, as data out Thursday showed a still-resilient labour market, with jobless claims coming in lower than expected. The 10-year rates retreated from that level later in the day, ending the session three basis points lower at 4.58%, and the 30-year yield hovered near its highest level since 2011 at 4.71%, down one basis point on the day. 
The slide in Treasury yields weighed on the US dollar index as it paired some of its gains from earlier this week. It ended the session half a percent lower at 106.13. The Chinese yuan was quiet in pre-holiday trading and was 0.1% higher at 7.30 renminbi in Shanghai. On Thursday, the PBOC cut the yuan's central parity rate, or the fixing, by 81 pips to 7.1798 per dollar. That's over 1,400 pips stronger than market expectations, the most on record. Hong Kong stocks tumbled to an 11-month low on Thursday. The Hang Seng Index fell 239 points, or 1.4%, to 17,373. For the month of September so far, the index is down 5.5%. The Tech Index dropped 1.5%, taking its month-to-date losses to 9.6%. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index fell 1.3% to its lowest level since late November. And market participants are now awaiting Chinese PMI data due over the weekend for more clues on economic activity in the country. On the mainland, Thursday was the last trading day before the Golden Week holiday. Mainland markets are closed today and all of next week and will reopen on October the 9th. The Shanghai Composite rose 0.1% yesterday to 3,110 and the index is marginally lower month to date. And futures markets are pointing to quite a sharp gain for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Looks like it's going to open up about 170 points. That's 1% at about 17,540. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's a Friday. We've got a long weekend coming up. Everyone's happy. It's nice to see a very happy Francis Lund here in the studio, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Hi, good morning. And also joining us is the ever happy Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Morning to you, Carlos. Good morning. Very good morning. Let's catch up on the latest Evergrande news in this ongoing saga. Shares of China Evergrande Group suspended from trading yesterday. Uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange announced trading in two other Evergrande units, its property services unit and its electric car units, was also suspended. No reason was given for the halt. However, after the close, Evergrande said that its chairman, Hoi Kaiyan, has been put under police surveillance. Evergrande said its shares would remain suspended until further notice. And in a statement to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange yesterday evening, Evergrande said Mr. Hoi has been subject to mandatory measures in accordance with the law due to suspension suspicion of illegal crimes. No further details about that were given by the company. Um, Francis, are we approaching the end for Evergrande? Yeah, this appears to be the end game for Evergrande Group because uh, <laughs> uh, its liability far exceeds uh, its assets already. I think, I think the arrest of uh, Mr. Hui and actually two former executives uh, 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 were related to a, a specific event. I think earlier in the year, uh, the the holding company, the Ever, uh, China Evergrande, took two billion yuan from the uh, subsidiary Evergrande Services for uh, its own use. So, so I think the two executives, the former executives who were involved in the transfer, uh, were arrested overnight. So, so I think. Uh, uh, that ends the, all the uh, rescheduling of the debts, and then also they will not be able to complete 
the uh, projects on hand. So I think the only way forward is really liquidation. It will mm. be a sad day for the uh, shareholders and, uh, of course, creditors. And, of course, it could be wound up in Hong Kong on October the 30th, couldn't it? Because there's a uh, yeah. winding up petition by some creditors. So that could be the, the grand denouement for, for Evergrande on that date. Yeah, but uh, but Evergrande's assets in Hong Kong have been sold already. Even mm. their flagship uh, building in Wan Chai and uh, two projects in Hong Kong, everything's been sold. So, so the footprint been wiped out. <laughs> Sad to say. Well, Carlos, what, what's the impact of this on the economy? I mean, presumably it's going to be another blow to confidence, isn't it, in the, the housing market um, on the mainland? And we're going to, if we lose one of uh, uh, China's biggest uh, property companies, maybe it was the biggest uh, at one stage, because it can't raise new debts, it, it just can't simply carry on, can it? Well, I think that um, there's two things um, that we are looking at with the property sector. The good news is that they have realized that there is an issue and that these issues tend to be very localized in nature. So first-tier cities versus second- and third-tier cities. Um, you know, in Shanghai, I'm not worried about property in Shanghai or Beijing. I think demand will always be there, but um, there seems to be a concern around the smaller second- and third-tier cities where oversupply is an issue. Um, so they are doing a lot more in terms of stimulating the sector with uh, monetary support, but also macroprudential easing. That is the, the silver lining. That is the good news. The bad news is that um, if you look at the way the bond market has been behaving <laughs> in the last two years, there are no, there are no defaults. And clearly, yeah. some of these situations are not, not, no longer sustainable. So mm -hmm. um, we are going to see an increase in, in, in restructuring. Defaults will be part of that restructuring effort. Um, currently, bond defaults are 0.2 billion. US dollar year to date, which is uh, re remarkably low, given that yeah. at the height there were 20 billion. So mm -hmm. um, you, we're going to have to see a few more companies uh, entering uh, defaults. And unfortunately, um, you know, Evergrande has a lot of exposure to some of these second and third tier cities. And there's another very different in terms of uh, risk and governance company, uh, Country Garden, that also has significant exposure to um, these second and third tier cities. So yeah. it is going to be a, a very uh, bumpy journey, uh, bumpy road ahead, um, and I think they will have to be all hands on deck to try to manage this as smoothly as possibly. Do you think the uh, authorities in Beijing are going to have to relent in the case of Evergrande and allow them to raise new debts? Because if they don't raise new debts, they can't do the restructuring, can they? It's it's totally reliant on them being able to raise more money, and if they can't restructure, uh -huh. then they can't carry on as a going entity. I, I I doubt that they will they will allow Evergrande to reschedule the, the, the debt because they they won't allow Evergrande to raise new debt, which means they they cannot reschedule. They 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 are content to just let the Evergrande to liquidate. And as it it is, I think uh, what we have is a cut loss situation. I think the uh, because the, the whole. It's just too big, and they are allowing the banks, the bondholders, and everybody to suffer. I think they they think that the economy can take a hit like that. Do you think it can, Carlos? Can the economy take a hit from um, a, a bankruptcy of a, a big company like Evergrande? I think so. I don't. I'm not worried about a credit event, um, given the nature of the banking sector in China being mostly state uh, controlled. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do agree. I think the 
the the the the spirit is very much that uh, some investors will have to take haircuts and um, any funds um, will be used to bail out um, projects that are uncompleted. So they don't want um, you know home buyers to to take the hit. Um, mm -hmm. So they will bail out any projects that are that haven't been completed yet, but uh, investors will unfortunately, you know, have to take the consequence of, of their investments in, in these type of bonds. What, we're hearing sort of talk rumours that the authorities are going to ease the restrictions on the selling the sale price of, of new properties in, mm -hmm. in some of the areas, because that really restricts these property developers from basically clearing some of their inventory. If they do do that, I mean, obviously there will be a big drop in prices for sure, but yeah. that would be a good thing wouldn't it because at least we'd start to find <laughs> out what is the real level for housing prices rather than this artificial level that the government's creating well according to the latest uh, uh, statistics uh, china has a supply of something like 600 million flats in china 600 million 600 million uh, they estimated that uh, uh, China has enough uh, uh, room for something like 3 billion people. Right. And now we have uh, 1.4 billion. So <laughs> if even if we don't build at all... There's we, still too many. <laughs> there's still too many. So I think, I, 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 I think they, it's better to just uh, bomb them all, all those unfinished flats out because because the local governments have been uh, profligate in their spending in selling uh, uh, land for development, which actually the population do not need. Mm. And, and but we need to find out what is the real level, the real clearing level for the housing market, don't we? That you could actually sell some uh, of these properties at. So there, uh, there is always a price, but of course it's nothing like um, the, <laughs> the, the current sort of artificial price. Yeah, definitely. But uh, it, it, it will be below the cost of uh, land mm. and uh, construction costs. But if that's the case, isn't it better that we find that out? Let's, let's find out what the real clearing price is. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Do you? <laughs> no, I actually don't necessarily entirely agree with that. Um, uh -huh. I think that what we will most likely see is a very fragmented, differentiated market. Um, in fact, if they, it goes both ways. They, so mm -hmm. developers also cannot adjust the prices up in some cases, and they have to get creative about deposits and and mm -hmm. other you know ways of paying more for your property. So I think. We'll probably see speculation and upside pressure on prices in places like Shanghai, especially in more favorable or desired neighborhoods. And then, of course, this race to the bottom in terms of some of the second and third cities. And you'd be surprised because I think some of the cities that might experience a decline in home prices um, are not that small um, in the in the global you know, scheme. Um, so I think this is this uh, bifurcation in terms of uh, the property sector, and that's probably what's going to happen. And of course, that's going to fuel income inequality and regional disparities, which is not what President Xi is aiming to achieve. Mm. Well, we're going to get more data on Saturday um, about the Chinese economy. We've got the PMI data, the official data, and also the Kaishin um, survey as well, which focuses more on the private sector. Um, Carlos, what are you expecting from, from the PMI data? What do you think it's going to show us? I suspect that given the number of easing measures that have been put in place in August, and the PMI being a highly cyclical indicator of sentiment, um, that we should see a broadening. 
um, of the recovery um, mm -hmm. in September. Um, more interesting than the sort of headline number for me this time around, we'll be looking at some of the subcomponents, specifically related to um, input and output prices, so the cost of uh, factory goods. Um, that indicator tends to be closely correlated with both industrial production and industrial profits. And so if we do see a bigger recovery there, um, that could mean that we are seeing a widening of the economic recovery away from just consumption of services and travel towards um, the manufacturing sector. Um, so that that's kind of what I'm uh, looking for at the moment. The Kaixing, of course, is a, uh, slightly different. Their sample includes a larger proportion of smaller private sector exporters, and it doesn't correlate necessarily with industrial production. It's more correlated with exports. Um, so the, the news there will be whether there's any significant improvement pointing to a recovery in external demand um, and fewer headwinds, at least on the export front for China in the um, last quarter of the year. That can help um, to stabilize growth slightly, um, but I wouldn't bet too much on, on that for now. Francis, are you optimistic? I mean, the data yeah. recently hasn't mm. been too bad as well. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's great, but it, it, mm. it seems to be showing signs of stabilising. Yeah, I, I think at least the, uh, the decline has been arrested. I think uh, what you see is an improvement in industrial profits and, mm. and, and maybe also also a, uh, a rise in services like uh, tourism and travel. I think uh, even retail sales is up a little bit. I think uh, uh, I, I, I think after a slow summer, I think we can look forward to a much better uh, autumn. I think uh, uh, we will have some recovery, but 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 then we won't have uh, really a, 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 an economy that's surging because uh, a lot of the manufacturing has has been. Uh, moved out of China to countries like India and Vietnam. So I think uh, we are paying the price for three years of lockdown and uh, overseas uh, foreign investors just lost their faith and, uh, in China. I think uh, that that is the result of terrible policies. On that uh, industrial profits uh, that you mentioned, the headline figure, profits earned by Chinese industrial firms, it fell 11.7% from a year earlier. But the good news was the, the decrease has slowed. It was 15.5% in the prior period. And on a monthly basis, month to month, uh, industrial profits jumped 17.2%. Yeah. That's the first increase this year. I mean, Carlos, that, that, I mean, if you look at that, that looks quite good, doesn't it, when you dig into the numbers? Mm. I think it's in line with the trend that we are observing and that Francis also mentioned. We are moving from a recessionary sort of summer. Um, and I say recessionary because, of course, we call a recession in China um, two quarters of growth below potential. And we've had already two quarters of growth uh, below potential. Um, so I think that what we are seeing is a gradual recovery and um, mm -hmm. an exit of this deflationary um, situation for upstream prices. Um, so we are seeing that PPI move up towards 0%. Um, we don't expect it will be positive this year. But that's, um, of course, going to, if the price of your the goods that you sell increase, then industrial profits also recover. Um, so this uh, exit of this deflationary situation, I think, is something that's going to boost industrial profits in the months ahead. And hopefully, we can look to positive growth in year and year terms in 2024.
Now, on China's economy, there was a really excellent piece in the Financial Times this week by Martin Wolf, mm-hmm. who is their economics correspondent, and it was called How China Can Avoid the Japan Trap. It's a topic that we've discussed before on this program to see mm-hmm. how China's economy may have been similar to Japan's when its property bubble burst. Um, in the beginning of the 1990s. But basically, to try and summarise what he says, he says debt is too high and is growing too rapidly, as we've just been talking about. But the risk for China is not that it's going to suffer a financial crisis. He said China's a creditor country. Its debts are all in its own currency. Its government owns all the banks. So uh, there's not going to be a financial crisis. But what the, the big danger for China is one of chronically weak demand. I mean, this is something that we've spoken about as well, isn't it, yeah. uh, among the three of us? Mm, definitely. I think the, the, the problem is that the local governments are basically bankrupt. Uh, you look at all 32 provinces and, uh, and, and cities. Uh, not even Shanghai has a budget surplus. And, and, and they spend all the money on, on the uh, tight uh, COVID control already and national security. Uh, I, I heard that some a local government don't even have money to pay uh, salaries to civil servants. I don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> but uh, uh, but what saves China is that is is the high savings rate. Mm. Uh, people save something like thirty percent of their income, uh, and which is an extraordinary high rate, and that. And a government can use that deposit to, to cushion any recession or try to bail out the local governments. So it's a transfer, in effect, from households to, to local governments of, of wealth, yeah. really, through various means. But it's a sort of financial repression that's going on. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Because the local government debt is something like one Oh, I don't know the figures, now one million uh, billion yen or something like that. Many trillion yen. 10 trillion or something. Yeah, 10 trillion yen or something like that. It's as large as the national economy already. Mm. So uh, uh, something has to be done to save the local governments. So what Carlos, what this piece basically says is on that savings rate, which is about 10 to 15 percent of GDP, um, it says it's got no choice. It's going to come down. But there's two ways in which it could happen. One is a bad way um, and one is a better way, the, the bad way. Uh, it's basically a, a collapse in GDP growth, which would bring down uh, the savings rate. But a, a better way would be to try and actively reduce the savings uh, that, uh, that households have and get them to spend more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think <clears throat> that actually the savings rate has been increasing um, as um, a result of a few factors. First of all, this, uh, this expectation that there's an unfavorable economic event, so you need a cushion to fall on in case you, you lose your job, and there's news about uh, you know, civil servants not getting paid, and so on and so forth, so people are a bit negative. Um, the other reason is that... Um, there is nothing to plonk your money in in China. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a, a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. So you need to give viable alternatives. Um, yeah. So I think that actually the saving rate is higher than 30%. I think the article uh, mentioned that if it declines to an already quite high level of 30% yeah. over the next few years, that would be enough to sort of unleash some liquidity into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what they have to do is they have to tap uh, two types of balance sheets. One is the, the household balance sheet. And of course, that 
balance sheet has become more healthy through COVID years because people are sitting on these larger pandemic surpluses. And the other balance sheet that hasn't come into play is the central government balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's going to happen in two ways. They can utilize household balance sheets to, of course, spur demand, um, but also um, you know, finance local governments. And that can be done through the issuance of local government bonds. Um, I think that if you're a person that lives in um, you know, Nanjing and the Nanjing local government issues a bond to finance some type of infrastructure spending, you're not going to think that your local government defaults. So I think there will be demand for this type of uh, um, sovereign type instruments. Um, mm-hmm. And they've also used these types of intru- instruments in the past when they want to do that fiscal transfer from households to local governments. Mm-hmm. The central government balance sheet... Um, should be utilized to um, support consumption through the transfers, which is to households, which is the other point uh, that Martin Wolf mentioned. And then he, I think, is coming at it from a U.S. angle and sort of hinting that, uh, you know, consumption vouchers. Consumption, yeah. yeah we, That's we, their favorite know, way, isn't it? It's the, the favorite way. Yeah, just give people money. Yes. But hand out welfareism, yeah. President Xi yeah, calls like it. Yeah, like Hong Kong. Yes, like Hong Kong, yes. But, you know, um, China is, I think, morally opposed to that. So there is another way to do that indirectly through taxation. So I think mm-hmm. uh, tax cuts are coming and they'll be more aggressive than before. Um, and it will entail an erosion in China's um, f- fiscal position at sovereign level. Uh, mm-hmm. But hopefully it, it will facilitate this uh, decline in the savings rate and gradual move towards consumption-led growth. If you want the savings rate to go down, then people's incomes, household incomes have got to go up, haven't they? The, the two go hand in hand. And that's also a problem. Household income by international standards is not particularly high in China. It's quite low. <laughs> but Yeah, but also how do you increase uh, private sector uh, household incomes when you have a declining investment and, and slower mm. growth for these types yeah, of corporates? And high unemployment. Yes, and high unemployment, that's an oversupply of labor, plus yeah. uh, local governments unable to increase wages um, mm-hmm. for civil servants. So it and unfortunately has to be on the transfer from central government balance sheet side where we'll see an increase in income to households. That's the only way in the near term to try to achieve this outcome. So there's got to be really then a complete restructuring of China's economic model and also the institutions, the political institutions, the financial institutions, the legal institutions that, that support that because this model, has been in place, what, for two, three decades now, really, hasn't it? Uh, I doubt they will do it because stability is a price above everything else. So that they they just don't want to tinker with the taxation system uh, in, in any way. I don't think so. So then in that case, if they don't do it, what is the, the outlook? Does it become a Japan then, the, like with the Japan we saw in the 1990s? Or does it, even worse, is it like the US in the, in the 1930s? <laughs> Well, I think the way it is now, I think it looks more like Japan because you have an aging population. And uh, I I think the most vibrant sector is the internet, the private sector, which they clamped down for the past three years, I think. I think it's really time for them to loosen the swings, let the internet private economy grow because they are... they are the ones who really hire all the college graduates. And uh, with them not hiring, you have all this 50% unemployment mm. among the youth population. Carlos, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that it will be some form of hybrid muddling through approach. 
um, the Chinese way. Yeah, the Chinese way. I mean, it makes no sense. To, you, you know, you're not going to have uh, massive um, current account surpluses and a lot of trade going forward. So it doesn't make sense to continue to support industry through window guidance. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that interest rate liberalization has to happen within the next five to 10 years. Um, by that, I mean that um, underwriters in banks should be able to appropriately price risk to SMEs in the private sector, which they can't to date because there's a 4% cap um, on how much interest you can charge um, on the reference rate. Um, so what has been happening so far is you keep interest rates low, but a lot of that money flows to state-owned industrial um, companies. Um, and that was great in order to achieve the economic miracle and rapid industrialization. But as we enter the next phase where you have um, private sector um, companies that are more productive, that are contributing to growth, that are starved from financing, I think it's inevitable mm -hmm. that they will have to go there. So some degree of restructuring of the economy is, is needed. And then, of course, um, there'll be changes to taxation. But given the situation with local governments, they have to go about that very gradually, very carefully. Um, mm -hmm. So I think... Um, that, uh, you know, I think a Japan-style um, lost three decades is, is, is also not the most likely outcome. Um, it's stability is above everything else in China. So uh, the U.S.-style rapid correction, um, you know, short-term short pain, long-term gain is, is also not possible. Um, so we're going to see a Chinese-style muddling yeah, through Chinese approach. Solution. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the history books are going to have to be rewritten at some point to see what this new solution is, because mm. the Japan or the U.S. versions, if they're not on the table they seem to be the two most popular ones or unpopular ones as the way <laughs> you want to look at it yeah um before you go and start your long weekend let's just have a quick chat about the market so i heard um, a, a hedge fund manager describe what has hit the markets this month as being the unholy trinity of macro investing in other words rising interest rates and bond yields rising us dollar and surging oil prices it was described as basically the unholy trinity that has really hit markets hard hasn't yeah. it yeah, yeah. I, I think you have to blame it on the Russia and Saudi Arabia. They are the culprit in uh, raising the uh, crude oil prices to above $91 per barrel. And that raised the inflation outlet, outlook and then raised the interest rate and caused people to sell stocks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hit Hong Kong as well, hasn't yeah, it? Because we're at 11, 11 month low here, although there are some local problems yeah, as well, I think. Uh, Hong Kong market is oversold, that. definitely, but then nobody's no buying. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, Carlos, the, it seems that maybe this month in September, investors have finally got the message that the Fed means it when it says rates are going to stay higher for longer because they haven't really believed it up to now, have they? Uh, correct. I think um, not only that, uh, but we cannot completely exclude the possibility of another rate hike this year. Um, even if they don't hike, uh, keep in mind that uh, sort of net financial conditions have only been tightening for a few months. And so we expect that tightening um, in quantitative terms will continue in the months ahead. So we will see a shift up in 10-year yields. Um, our range was 45 to 5%, but we we're well within that range um, already. So I wouldn't even... Um, exclude the possibility of some upside risks to that 5% number. And that is going to fuel um, currency depreciation and outflows out of um, other emerging markets, including Asia, which of course means that, uh, that uh, we're going to have uh, cost put inflation in places like Japan, Hong Kong, and China, 
And that's going to complicate the outlook for 2024. So I, I definitely agree that uh, the market has been hit by a holy trinity of yeah. macro factors. <laughs> unholy trinity. Unholy trinity. Unholy trinity. Unholy trinity. Yeah. Um, and so it does, it does look like it's going to be a challenging start to 2024 unless there's a much faster sort of, um, you know, inflection in terms of the macro um, headwinds. And, and what also investors have got to bear in mind is that even when rates do peak in 2024, perhaps sometime, they are not coming down and the markets still haven't got it right. They're still pricing in three to four rate cuts next year. Now, the Fed itself on its dot plot says only two. Sounds like the market's got some more repricing to do in terms of its expectations about how much rates are going to come down next yeah, year. I think uh, people are too optimistic about the interest rate outlook, I think. Uh, the Fe the Federal Reserve is right and the market is wrong on this. Yeah, also this this expectation that the Fed is going to cut rates and therefore achieve a soft landing. Um, it doesn't work that way. It's the other way around. So <laughs> we need economic pain before they start cutting rates. Okay. Well, look, great to hear your thoughts. Okay. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. Enjoy the uh, the long holiday weekend. You heard there Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP, and Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. <laughs> I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Penny. Now, I heard this week a fund manager, a macro investing fund manager, describe what's been going on in the markets in September as the unholy trinity of macro investing. Basically, yields going up along with uh, with interest rates, the US dollar soaring and oil prices soaring. That, that combination is the unholy trinity. I think maybe there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? If we look Look at what's happened uh, to markets in September. Those have been the three major factors driving um, investors' thoughts. Yeah, well, I think equities are going to have probably their worst month for the year, um, depending on tonight, of course, um, in the US. But uh, even with a little bit of a bounce overnight, they're, they're on track to have a bad month. Oil prices uh, spiked up. And again, part of that was supply demand, but probably sentiment as well. And surprisingly, the sentiment. Um, should soften oil prices if demand uh, starts to tail off, but supply issues have driven prices up there. And then, of course, bond yields have finally broken uh, up um, to a level they probably should have been expected to be at if you if you run the thesis that we're going to have a higher interest rate environment for longer, which is certainly the theme that seems to be running through the markets this week as well. So I'm not sure the unholy trinity, because I'm sure there's many trinities that can be considered unholy. <laughs> um, but this, this one probably is par for the course. But um, essentially, yes, I think it's I think the emergence of the lag effect of the higher interest rates is starting to feed through. Uh, in terms of sentiment, and that's probably reflected mostly in uh, in the bond market uh, at this stage because even though we're starting to see the impact of higher interest rates, the labour market stays tight and um, growth has not completely tailed off, but the expectation of the higher interest rate environment for longer is what's being reflected in those bond yields. It's interesting. If you look at the performance of the S&P 500, it's down 4.6% in September. But it basically, the recent peak was July the 26th. That's when the Fed raised rates and said they were no longer expecting a recession. Since then, the S&P's lost almost 300 points. That's over 6%. It seems to be the key thing, no longer expecting a recession. Therefore, rates are going to be higher for longer. That seems to be the thing that has sort of hit investors like a, like a punch on the nose. Yeah, because, and then again, that gets priced into earnings yield on equities. 
So if the higher for longer thesis um, goes through, bond yields go up. 10-year is what prices earnings yield. 10-year trades over 4.5%. That reflects effectively into the valuation of equity prices on a PE basis. And as a result, they look expensive. So mm. uh, the market investors adjust for that um, and p- potentially will continue, you know, as uh, this persistence of higher rates goes through. If the 10-year yield goes up and there are some people forecasting it to go to 5% um, from 4.5%, then that's clearly going to feed through to equity prices. So mm. um, in terms of asset allocation, investors are probably pivoting more towards um, bonds versus equities over the coming few months if that if this still continues to play out i mean if you look at the the 10-year bond yield it's about one and a half percent higher now than the earnings yield that you just mentioned which in in effect is Mm. is the the inverse of the pe ratio that is a big gap it's the highest it's been many years so i think as you say it, it starts to make bonds look very attractive compared to equities at these at these levels that's right and you know whilst uh the the gap can be sustained for a while if the forecast is for um, lower rates coming forward. I, if, if, if the expectation going forward is that this is the peak in rates and rates are going to come off, Fed are going to ease, uh, the economy slows, then that you know then it, it's possible that that uh, that gap will be narrowed quite quickly. But I think the idea that this persistence in the higher rate environment is yet to really be fed through to equity prices in in full suggests that there's going to be a tougher period for equities over the coming months relative to bonds. What's been interesting about this year is that the market has been pretty well consistently wrong about Fed policy all year, hasn't it? And maybe I'm wondering it's still wrong because if you look at 2024, the markets are pricing in four rate cuts for, for next year. The Fed is saying quite clearly that isn't going to be the case. Their dot plot is showing at most two rate cuts. Yeah, which surprises me because I think they've been consistent in that. But you got to remember the market always tries to you know run ahead of what the Fed say. And one of the things that we know with the Fed and central banks in general is that they don't want to give up the the dialogue on a tighter uh, inflation pitch. Mm. So they're not likely to soften the language, even if they feel that maybe the job is done because. Uh, as we've discussed in previous sessions, inflation is an expectation thing. And once you start to accept that you're going to have higher inflation, you'll get higher inflation. So I think the central banks, even if they're not necessarily against the market and the market may be more right than wrong, they're not going to say it and mm. they're going to continue to keep the pressure on. So this this theme of higher for longer has hit US equities and European ones, also out here in Asia as well, here in Hong Kong, um, in Southeast Asia. How, how has it impacted Australian markets? Similar. So year-to-date, the ASX 200 is about flat for the year, but it was up, and as you mentioned, you know, the last couple of months they've been in pretty good shape. Um, over a one-year period, still about 8 9% up, but that's about 7 or 8% less than the US market. Australia's dynamics really quite an interesting one because if you charted it, um, notwithstanding the population growth, then, you know, we're starting to look quite good. But if you actually... Um, factor in the significant increase in population in the last 12 months we're actually probably already in a a gdp per capita recession Mm. the last two quarters gdp per capita have been negative for australia because uh, on the long-term average of increasing in population of 230,000 in the last 12 months alone uh, 560,000 people have come into australia Um, so the population has increased substantially above uh, long-term trend and that has, um, you know, factored an overall increase in GDP 
by definition. Mm. But if you look at it on a per capita basis, we're actually not performing all that well. Mm. So if if we assume that interest rates are going to remain high for the rest of this year and into um, 2024, inflation is still sticky as well. How do you invest in that type of environment? Because it's not what we've been used to, is it? For the last, what, 15 years or so since the global financial crisis, we've, we've been in a very different environment. This is something new. Do we need to rethink our investment strategy in terms of what do we do now in high inflation, high interest rate environments? Well, I think, yeah, you go back to, to the rebalance between bonds and equities uh, is an obvious one. So some of those portfolios that had been effectively um, strongly favoured in equities over the last period have paid off substantially and bonds haven't been that attractive. So I think that probably is an obvious thing, but um, it's not new. Uh, but it's probably someone uh, a lot of people who have been in the markets last 10 years haven't really had to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think the, the overall broad market, uh, outlook for equities is maybe soft, but within that there becomes opportunities. So good, you know, stocks that um, effectively have market power um, can pass through prices, can uh, are well established in good balance sheets, will continue to perform. So I think what happens in terms of equity investment is that you tend to favour more uh, value stocks versus mm. and quality versus growth. Um, the exception to that would be AI and you know new technology, which still presents an opportunity. Um, there is also a symptom emergence of private equity or private credit investments, so off-market type uh, opportunities that can exist. So, you know, whilst it, it can be a, an overall negative picture for equities, there are opportunities within that. And so stock selection, sector selection, um, value quality over growth tend to be where the investors start to f- focus their attention and then against that overlay of maybe a higher fixed income allocation. And I presume you have to look very closely at the balance sheet of individual companies because with rates higher, companies that have got a lot of debt um, are going to at some point have to refinance that and they're going to have to refinance it at much higher rates. So presumably that's going to have to be a consideration as well in, in, in the investment portfolio. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, it sort of plays to the idea, you know, we've we've had probably a decade now, probably even two decades, where passive investing in equities has has led the way and been very successful and completely uh, acceptable thesis over the long term. But in periods like this where you're going transitioning economy, um, active investment can probably represent some opportunities. So you're looking for, you know, a stronger due diligence on company performance, balance sheet, outlook of earnings, a quality of earnings, all of those things that are going to be much more relevant probably could have got away with a bit of that over the last 10 years as passive investing when index-based investing worked. More now, you might see more opportunities in active investing, which means you know, good stock selection, uh, good sector selection. Now, we haven't really seen this type of environment since maybe the 1970s when uh, inflation was high and interest rates were high. Um, and then in the 1980s onwards, central banks sort of got inflation under control. But but back then, um, the, the, the way the markets seemed to work was, first of all, if inflation moved up, and it did move up sharply in the 70s, so if, if, if uh, economists are wrong and we see a big burst in inflation again, stock markets get very, very volatile. But also... Um, Hard assets tend to do better than financial assets. Things like gold, things like real estates do better than, than financial assets. Do you think that's maybe something we should be thinking about now this, this time around as well? Yeah, I think there, there are some arguments around the commodities uh, sector. Gold obviously being a, a, an inflation hedge, but more broadly commodities in general, real assets in general, 
commodity cycle is an interesting one because the prices have been depressed based on demand, based on um, yeah, supply-demand dynamics. But in the long structural term, certain commodities probably have a good tailwind mm-hmm. uh, over the next uh, long-term period. So, yeah, they re- represent good value. Um, you will get volatility, though, in commodities, particularly. Um, uh, so that's one thing to be wary of, particularly because they're much more sensitive to demand. But ultimately, the real assets here can be a hedge against uh, inflation. So I think, you know, investors around the world property always and real estate always represents a fairly large piece of the equation so that will likely continue although what people will be looking for is potentially some stress in that sector to look for a better entry point um and at this stage we haven't quite seen that particularly here in australia even though we've had you know four or five hundred basis 400 basis points of tightening we haven't seen a lot of distress in the in the mortgage market at this point in time so i think a few people will be hanging out to see if that market comes off and represents a better entry point. And also, the other part of that unholy trinity, surging oil prices, I think we've got to reprice our inflation expectations, haven't we? With oil um, close now to $100 a barrel, I've seen some analysts say that, you know, oil could get up to $150 a barrel. Yes, it has a very quick impact on demand, though. So higher oil prices have an immediate impact on household spending. So they they will actually have the impact of slowing activity, which ultimately could potentially bring down inflation. So in of themselves, yes, they add to a higher price at the headline level, but they actually change consumer behaviour quite aggressively. So if, if there's two elements of, of what drives household behaviour, uh, uh, interest rates and energy prices. So if you get a huge increase in oil, yes, it'll have an inflationary impact, but it'll also quickly depress economic activity which would then you know, lead to lower rates over time or you know, lower activity and therefore lower demand. So I think in a sense, um, yeah, you'll get a spike in inflation, but it's less um, long-term because consumers react very quickly to higher energy prices. Mm. Uh, what The other thing we've also seen in some markets, I mean, down in Singapore, for example, this has been happening. Investors have been looking at sort of structures, structured notes that combine uh, a fixed in- income element and an equity element as well. So that the obvious one is things like convertible bonds, for example, but maybe also structured notes along a similar theme. Maybe there's something where um, investors ought to think about where you do get the benefit of uh, of a yield, but also you've still got the equity kicker. So this is where you you look at bank hybrids as a good example. So they're, um, you know, like a convertible equity, not quite, but uh, the hybrids are, yeah, there's been a big increase in those because you get a yield, a running yield. And whilst you're slightly down on the capital stack in terms of protection, you're higher than equity which means they're a bit more attractive. So, yeah, we've seen a lot of interest in in the hybrid space. Um, uh, banks are using it as a good tool to raise capital as well. So I think in hybrids across corporate sector, um, yeah, likely to be attractive. Toby, well, thanks very much indeed. I think you've got a long weekend down there as well. So have a great, uh, have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. It's a holiday weekend here in Hong Kong, as we've said several times this morning, so there's no Money Talk on Monday. I'll be back with another show on Tuesday. Joining me then will be Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Have a great long weekend. 
Money Talk.